1: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and I'm here with Str- with Sharon Strokia, professor of history at Emory University, to talk about her newest book, Forgotten Healers, Women in the Pursuit of Health in Late Renaissance Italy. Hi,
2: Sharon. How are you? I'm doing well, well Jana. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, thanks. I'm
1: very excited. I loved the book, and I'm really uh, I'm so excited to talk to you about it. So Likewise. Wonderful. <laughs> So how is Atlanta? Are you teaching face-to-face?
2: Atlanta is, at the moment, wet and soggy, Mm. but warm. And no, we're doing everything online.
1: Yeah, okay. That's a whole new set of challenges, huh? Yeah,
2: it is. For everybody, teachers, students, staff, um, you know, pacing is a lot more difficult um, than than I had imagined. But we're getting closer Mm -hmm. to the end yeah yeah it's
1: yep one more semester i think and then maybe maybe back to normal (laughs) all right um well speaking of uh my back to normal i don't know i don't know where i wanted to go with that segue but so let's just uh i want to dive in so my first question as always is an attempt to kind of place this book in your narrative as an historian and so Thinking back, my favorite part of Death and Ritual was your exploration of the role of women in the funerary rites and what that meant for their position as important members in the kin group. Then uh, nuns and nunneries shone a light on the centrality of female monastic life in the battles of what we call the era of reformations writ large. So here I see you moving your spotlight to a new area, (laughs) suggesting that um, women were not only involved in Renaissance medicine, but were in fact central to its practice and progress, Um, Is that a fair characterization of how this is going? I think
2: that's a really good summation of my own intellectual trajectory. So as you know, I I was trained as a social and cultural historian of Renaissance Italy and published those earlier books and other articles that, that really dealt with the various intersections of women, family, and religion in 15th and 16th century Italy. But about 10 years ago, I started to get interested in the history of health and healing, but I had no training in that field. So I thought the best way to approach some of these issues in the history of medicine was through the lens of gender and the lens of labor history, um, rather than trying to contend with uh, materials I knew knew very, very little about, like academic medicine or modes of textual transmission. So so the way I see this book in terms of my long-term intellectual makeup is, is that it does represent a combination of abiding interests that you signaled earlier, but interwoven with newer questions about knowledge production, about commercial innovation, and the early modern culture of empiricism. Um, so I would say that Uh, You know, I've retained all of those earlier interests, but now try to respond to what has often been called the material turn in early modern studies.
1: Very nice. Um, That must have been fun. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what you're consulting. So um, and I would like you to tell our listeners about that. So let's talk about your sources for a moment. What are you using? Um, Where did they come from? How did you find them? You know what's the relationship between the source base and your argument just you know just talk a little bit about that for me
2: yeah he, as as you probably know uh, i'm an, an archive rat of the first yeah. order i just love working in italian archives and in particular in florentine archives so i i came to forgotten healers partly by accident and partly by design because once I finished my previous book on nuns and nunneries in Renaissance Florence, I learned that I had collected all kinds of fragmentary archival material that documented religious women as healthcare practitioners, particularly in the realm of pharmacy and nursing. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to do something small with this until I settle on a new project, but I realized that in fact this was a new project and then I just went full bore and tried to really look for other kinds of materials. So I I think just to address your question more directly, uh, one source base that looms very large in the project uh, is a a narrative source base comprised of letters. Um, Women in in the 15th and 16th century wrote just a a large number of letters. I think it was, you know, a very uh, feminine genre. Um, They established epistolary networks. And so I'm using a lot of letters, particularly uh, coming from the Medici court, but also from institutions like convents. So nuns were great letter writers in part because they couldn't get out and about. Um, So, you know, narrative sources um, that range from letters to, uh, kind of chronicle descriptions of uh, mir- miraculous cures or uh, canonization proceedings and the like, which have a, a sort of narrative form. But I try to uh, enrich and uh, check those narrative sources with more what what I would just call a kind of a quantitative data uh, mm-hmm. coming from account books, right? Mm-hmm. So italians were wonderful paper pushers and they kept all kinds of uh, count books sometimes interlaced with narratives uh so that you can find not only the numbers of uh you know what what uh convents were selling uh, at what price and so forth but you know those are interspersed with little narrative entries so it's a kind of hybridized form Um, but the count books were a wonderful rich source to, to tap and then of course things like statutes that would give me a more prescriptive sense, um, uh, petitions that were attached to statutes. So things that are not perhaps linear in in the way we think about them uh, because of the way they were archived. And then finally, visual materials. Mm -hmm. I I do try to make some use of visual materials, such as uh, uh, manuscript illustrations, uh, material objects like pharmacy jars and so forth.
1: Wonderful. As you're talking, I'm, I'm nodding along. Yes, of course. This sounds so familiar. Um, it is funny. Um, so many historians, when you ask them what brought them to their new project, they're going to say, well, I was working on this thing, but then I found this in the archive. It's like uh, it's,
2: it's so truth. wonderful.
1: God, it oh, it just- is.
2: And, and I think, you know, th- this is how history, you know, can have an, a great deal of intention behind it, but is also very serendipitous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, you go to the archive and you, it's it's hard uh, not to be inspired when you're in such a wonderful space. Um, Sometimes cold, but good space. Um, (laughs) All right. So uh, the next, we've got a couple big questions here. So my super big, what do you see as the primary argument with this book? What's your overarching argument?
2: Well, my overarching argument is that... Simply put, um, a wide range of women were involved in healthcare and medical provisioning and that they were socially important to the uh, delivery of healthcare services in this period. And I think where uh, I, I want to give that an edge is to say that um, I would argue that in, the increased demand for healthcare services, coupled with this a growing interest in preventive health practices, actually opened new opportunities for Italian women to participate in both the medical economy and in emerging cultures of experimentation. So that argument runs contrary to uh, an older historiographical convention that says that you know women healers were marginalized in the 16th century, uh, in line with professionalization.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that as a really important contribution. Um, that, I mean, in uh, that is such an old saw, this idea that as things begin, beca- as, as, As any profession becomes professionalized, women get written out of it. Well, and they may get written out of it, but that doesn't by historians, but that doesn't place women outside of this situation. So I think that's a really major contribution, and I love it. Thank Um, you. It was a really fun book. It was a great book. Um, So, what can you tell me, kind of, what you consider to be your other main contributions to the discourse?
2: Yeah, well, it, you know, because the book has such a sweeping panorama in terms of the kinds of practitioners I'm looking at, I, I s- see that uh, potentially I, my book has the ability to contribute to a couple of different areas. So I would just single out three different areas where I feel like the project broke new ground. And, and the first would be that my, uh, my study takes a more body-centered approach to healthcare that focuses attention on what Renaissance Italians actually did to treat and prevent illness. Um, so for instance, as opposed to thinking about academic medicine or the, the wonderful developments that are taking place in the university around uh, dissection and the learning of anatomy, I'm really more concerned with uh, what people are doing, right? In, in as frontline healers in uh, managing illness, in understanding bodies from different points of view. So one of the results of of that body-centered approach is that we can cut across the widest possible range of activities and social strata. So as I I hope we'll discuss later in the podcast, uh, some of the people we'll meet in the course of the book really cover a very broad range from the top echelons of the Medici court, you know, all the way through orphaned girls who are working in uh, syphilis hospitals. So, so I think that this body-centered approach uh, allows us as scholars to appreciate the value and meanings that contemporaries attach to different services within this pluralistic medical marketplace. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be uh, one area where I. I think I contribute to the discourse. A second area would be that I argue uh, that Italian women working outside traditional guild and academic settings became invested in empirical knowledge making through the pursuit of health. So I, I think that my study expands the reach of empirical culture into the female spaces of Renaissance courts, convents, and charitable institutions. And in this way, I'm taking a primarily uh, skills-based view of early modern knowledge production that emphasizes how the work of of the mind and hand uh, were unified. So so that kind of approach uh, allows me to examine the ways that bodywork provided avenues for Italian women to participate in the culture of experimentation through making remedies or through uh, writing out uh, different recipes and exchanging them through to trying out different kinds of care practices and so forth. So that would be the uh, second area. And then a final area would be uh, to look at the commercial dimensions of women's pharmacy work in late Renaissance Italy. Um, we, we've learned quite recently that women were very much engaged in different kinds of Pharmaceutical work, making remedies, but no one before uh, the the my study I think has really leaned into looking at uh, the uh, female these female run businesses. So I'm looking particularly at convent pharmacies because, of course, uh, convents as institutions kept excellent records, and they were also extremely important uh, vendors within this medical marketplace. So what I was trying to do in the book was to show how nuns worked at the nexus of the market and the laboratory as both medical artisans and entrepreneurs. And I'm able then to reconstruct uh, what their business looked like, uh, what kind of products they sold, their clients, Uh, have a little bit about prices and so forth. And I think that makes a contribution then to both economic and labor history. So those would be my three areas.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. <laughs>
1: that's, that is really, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's, um, you're just like, okay, just let me radically change the way we think about this. Done. <laughs> um. <laughs> well done. Okay, so you know you bring up these these groups of women you discuss in detail. So let's uh, let's spend some time on them. All right, and we'll start with the top of the food chain, the top of the social strata, the social uh-huh. scale, with the Medici, uh, old friends of all Florentine historians. So uh, tell, talk to me about these women. What did you learn? What how do how do they help us understand this topic? Well,
2: one of the things that I learned about of uh, renaissance women in general is that they tend to have a pretty high degree of health literacy and that that is a surprising thing because the sort of conventional wisdom is that you, you know much of uh, the sort of home-based practice of you know was not very biomedically astute right mm-hmm. And it was all folklore and sort of you know has a pejorative kind con- of con- connotation and i think one of the things i wanted to say about court women in particular, was that they had you know, a good bit of training in uh, the making of medicines, in, di- in learning how to diagnose illnesses, in using various sensory repertoires to understand the human body, um, reading vernacular texts. So they were really well-prepared even though they were living in a situation where they could literally uh, call up a a court physician who could treat anything you know from an academic standpoint Mm -hmm. so i think one of the things uh, that really uh, caught my eye in terms of the early medici court in particular was the high level of health literacy and then the way that Medici duchesses and court ladies actually put their skills to work in diagnosing illnesses, in uh, making uh, collaborative medical decisions with court physicians, um, sometimes running contrary to the medical advice of court physicians, you know, who were on the payroll and so forth. And so there is a kind of uh, negotiation of power. That uh, revolved around uh, the issuance of of healthcare directives. Um, people had their own plans, oftentimes, for what kind of therapies they wanted to uh, to to use in case of illness. So, mm-hmm. there there are a couple of things uh, I think of interest. Um, and then also the other, the other thing I would just mention quickly is that um, courts. Are, kind of cut across the social spectrum in that they employed a large number of people um, who were not noble or who were not patrician. And it was interesting to see how some of the the lower tier uh, employees and servants at the Medici court were uh, integrated into the process Mm -hmm. of decision-making and and healthcare provisioning. I was thinking particularly of wet nurses and uh, and the so-called matrons or, or nurses of this Medici nursery that grows literally year by year,
1: <laughs> of course. Oh, uh, that is uh, that really does kind of change the underst- our understanding of power and like the idea that there's a negotiation there. Um, it's really uh, that's that's new. It's fascinating. Um, So with nuns, you're back on familiar ground as well, um, continuing to help us see the way convents were intertwined of like just so many layers of urban Italian life. What's going on there? Well,
2: this was, I think, one of my first clues from previous work. You know, these account books were meticulous in many ways. You know, because uh, nuns uh, had to have their books audited, they kept their own records. Right. And so they were able to write down in whatever detail they felt was appropriate of various kinds of uh, expenses or things that uh, things that might have uh, escaped the attention of somebody like a notary and so forth. So the fact that these are female generated records, by and large, I think also gives us a unique perspective. So that I was already aware of. But Um, One of the things that was the initial thread linking my previous work with this book was um, the sense that uh, nuns were very much involved in making medicines and then also marketing them to a much broader lay public. And they did that because it was such an important revenue stream for them. Uh, I, I, I knew that convents were always on the edge of... You know going under financially they were always looking for new sources of support in this mixed economy and so right around 1500 i learned that from from again my archival sources that nuns began to commercialize what had been a long healing tradition and started to explore new little niche markets first with their client their their long-standing business partners and with their traditional clients, their female allies and patrons, but then very rapidly uh, started to expand their businesses within say 20 years by 15, 20 or so. And then everyone got in the game. Um, so this became a very uh, robust revenue stream for uh, for female convents.
1: And then finally hospitals, which, um... I think are the places most likely to be linked with the great male physicians and like medical theorists. Um, so what's the contribution of women here?
2: Well, I'm thinking here more about patient care and who's actually doing, you know, uh, the who's performing the daily grind of hospital care. Uh, and I focused in particular on these new hospitals that were developed in response to a new disease of syphilis. So these pox hospitals, as they're often called, they're hospitals for syphilitics. Um, in in it, They're uh, hospitals that uh, just flourish after again, about 1520. And the syphilis patients needed a great deal of care when they took this particular therapy, when they took a, a treatment that was designed to certainly uh, reduce their symptoms, but hopefully put them back on the road to good health. And they were oftentimes in the hospital for uh, one to two months. So, you know, who's taking care of them? You know, the, the syphilis hospitals employed a salaried physician who would make the rounds, not necessarily every day, but a couple of times a week. And so, patient care is really left in the hands of these healthcare workers who I saw as essential to the development of new routines, certainly to the, uh, to the uh, recovery of poor syphilit- syphilitic patients. And so what I was interested there is uh, was in their medical know-how and uh, how they gained that know-how, what kind of work they did, um, I discovered that they made medicines for all of the hundreds if not thousands of patients in the hospitals um, and on an industrial scale and and so they were really you know working at a level that was well beyond uh, the level of the household making medicines for you know members of their family unit i mean this is really a major enterprise with quite literally tons and tons of Materia Medica being processed annually.
1: So we've got women diagnosing illness, prescribing medicine, making those medicines, selling those medicines, administering those medicines, and literally like physically, bodily providing care for hundreds of people. Um, that's, that's sweeping, right? That's, that's kind of this, we see this is women involved in every stage of, of the process. Um, That's, it's, that's really a profound effect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that's really a good summation. What I was trying to show was uh, by looking at different spaces and different scales, that there's just this tremendous deep profound investment and, Resource that has been unheralded, and that's why I called the book "Forgotten Healers," because you know these women working from, say, the household, um, and you know even a court setting or the household court setting, all the way to large institutions catering to many, many thousands of, of uh, inhabitants, you know, really were central to the delivery of healthcare in the 16th and 17th centuries.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a fairly sophisticated medical system, it seems. Yes. Yeah. So am I leaving anything out there? What else do we need to discuss? You know, I, I think
2: that uh, you've appreciated my appreciation <laughs> for, you know, the skill levels of, uh, you know, a variety of different female healers. Uh, I, I think what I would just emphasize is, the ways in which some of these women, certainly not all, but a number of them became hooked, if you will, on kind of scientific experimentation, right? They really enjoyed working with their hands. They enjoyed experimenting with materials. They often had uh, the kind of, you know, a physical setup in a kitchen that would allow them to tinker and tweak Different recipes. And so I, I, I think one of the things I found most engaging was the ways in which uh, women with inquiring minds use their skilled hands to really uh, make changes in uh, terms of medicine uh, and then uh, kind of use that uh uh the sort of practical knowledge they acquired as a springboard sometimes towards a more theoretical understanding.
1: Uh, and this has some some important implications too for just the way we think about the you know so-called scientific revolution. Um and the I mean like and and I think well as you brought up, you know, centering this on the body. Um and, and, and like what experimentation means, like what practice means. You know, it's very, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things to think about with this work. Yes. Cool. So uh, are you going to be spending any more time with it or what, what's next? What are you working on now?
2: So I, I will be carrying forward a couple of these strands from this book. And I, I just launched a new book project that I'm tentatively calling Health for Sale, Uh, which explores the commercial culture and the medical marketplace in the same period in early modern Italy, roughly 1550 to 1700. And here again, I I wanna challenge some conventional takes. So the the story to date is that Italian uh, state authorities regulated the medical market primarily by uh, means of new licensing agreements new licensing mechanisms, and again, that was the way in which women were filtered out. But I take uh, a more trust-based approach to the way medical consumers were created and cultivated. So, for instance, I, I want to explore different market innovations, such as the origins of pharmaceutical brands and printed medical advertisements. Again, in the 16th and 17th centuries, which we tend not to associate uh, (laughs) with the origins of, you know, big pharma. Um, But um, I have a great deal of archival material about uh, things like drug patents and the organization of early modern drug trials that included human subjects. So I've got issues of branding and drug trials and pharmaceutical if not monopolies, then certainly trademarks and so forth. So this is obviously a timely subject, but one mm-hmm. whose roots run remarkably deep, I think, into the early modern period.
1: That's uh, wonderful. I'm very excited about that book. Thank and uh, yeah, I can't wait to interview you about that. Um, which, you know, a little bit of time, I, I know it'll take a minute, but I'll be ready uh, when you finish it. All right, thank you so much for your time. I'm uh, um, I'm really grateful, and I have you know I've been reading your books for I mean I for like I've been been following you as a scholar for a very long time, so it means a lot to me to get to talk to you.
2: Likewise, um, thank you so much. Right. Thank you for your for your excellent questions, really provocative and excellent questions. I appreciate
1: it. That's lovely to hear. Thanks very much. All right, until next time. Okay, thank you. Ciao